This is the Life at Work podcast, an initiative of City Bible Forum. The Life at Work podcast is produced by City Bible Forum. To find out more, go to citybibleforum.org slash lifeatwork. Hi, I'm Andrew Laird and welcome to the Life at Work podcast, where we meet real workers wrestling with real workplace issues. Today, a man whose work some believe may just save the planet. For me, in that instant, everything changed. I'm not fighting the Sahara Desert. I don't actually need multiple millions of dollars to do this thing. Everything that I need is literally at my feet. My guest today is forest maker Tony Renaudo, whose pioneering land management work has quite literally rehabilitated millions of hectares across Africa and beyond. I'm Andrew Laird, and this is the Life at Work podcast. What do you want to do when you grow up? It's a question we frequently ask children, and it's a question you were perhaps asked often as a child. For Tony Renaudo, he had two childhood fascinations, trees and the continent of Africa. And when he grew up, these two passions came together in an extraordinary way in his work. But I'll let him share more of that story. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be with you. No, it's wonderful to to be able to chat with you today, Tony. Tony, tell me, you grew up in regional Victoria. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and your early memories of, of loving the natural environment. Uh, c- certainly. So I, I grew up in Myrtleford, northeast Victoria, and it's a beautiful part of the country. Uh, the, the trees practically came down to within 200 metres of our front yard, and so that was our playground. And there was a small band of boys at the end of our street. We used to play cowboys and Indians up there, climb the trees. We swam and fished in the Ovens River. And one memory that particularly stands out, every Sunday we would drive to Wangaratta where my grandparents lived. And uh, within um, uh, maybe 10, 15 kilometres of Myrtleford, the bush comes right down to the edge of the road. As soon as you get to a slight rise, it's the Beechworth turnoff, the country opens up. And bang, in, in front of you would be the bare Mamunji Hills. And I'm thinking, mm. why did the farmers have to take every tree off that bare hill? And in my mind's eye, mm. I'd be up there in my gumboots, shovel in hand, planting trees and, and uh, plugging up the deep <laughs> gullies that had formed. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, it's interesting because in your book, The Forest Underground, which we'll, we'll talk a lot more about in, in a moment's time, uh, you, you do describe having that early love and even concern for the environment as, as a child. And when I read that, it, it, it really struck me as, uh, as, as quite a profound observation to make uh, at, at the age that you were. So where do you think this came from, this early concern that you had for the environment? You, you know, I, I don't recall any relatives or friends of the family talking about environmental issues uh, Growing up, I was very curious, and I I would read, I'd watch uh, the news on television, and uh, at some point, (laughs) a whole river in the U.S. caught fire. Mm. And I was so upset that people, companies had polluted the river to the extent where water could catch fire. Mm. Um, There were oil spills on the high seas. There was pollution killing fish. And it just deeply, deeply moved me. So I, I don't know where it came from, but I, I just love trees. Mm, mm, mm. Now, alongside this love of trees, uh, you also had a, a real interest in in Africa as a child also, didn't you? Yes, and it's it's funny when I look back because there's nothing in Europe or the US that attracted me. It all seemed concreted over mm. and very orderly and tamed. But Africa, in my mind at least, was still a wild place. Um, uh, there was still bushland and wildlife that you could see. And there was something 
very, very strongly calling me to that continent, even as a little boy. Mm. In fact, um, I, I still have th- this book to this day, but the, the two books I can remember my mum buying for me when I was a child, one was a picture Bible, mm. and the other one was this picture book of Africa, and I've kept that to this day. Wow, wow. It, it sounds like, we, as a child, it would be fair to describe you as adventurous or uh, even as a, as a risk-taker? Uh, pr- probably not. Okay. I was pretty shy, yeah. and uh, uh, in many ways, the least likely person to travel anywhere <laughs> overseas. So, uh, not not really. Okay, well, <laughs> that's fascinating. So, so tell me this: this love of the environment, this concern even for the environment, this uh, this fascination with with Africa, these two passions that you had from a very young age. Tell me, how did these two passions come together in your in your study, and then later on into your work? Sure. So in in the family, I was the gardener. So I had this passion for growing things. And I I think the connector really is agriculture. Mm. Um, And I just loved putting my hands in the dirt and it put me in contact with plants. But at that time, I just described previously um, the the impact of the environment on me. Mm. I, I was quite shocked at that same time as I was enjoying this bushland I was reading about events overseas, uh, the clearing of jungle in the Amazon and Borneo and a lot of bulldozing of bushland in my own district. At the same time, uh, from watching the news and reading, I realised children just like me, who through no fault of their own, happened to be born elsewhere, they were going to bed hungry while the main crop in our district was tobacco and Mm. just didn't add up. And I, I think I was very much influenced by my mum. She had very strong faith, and that gave me a, a framework, I think, for for life. But I, I did the one thing that a little boy could do. I, I, otherwise, I just felt powerless. Hmm. But I, I just shut up a boy's prayer saying, please use me somehow, somewhere to make a difference. Hmm. And that, I guess, uh, well, what to do? I need to be useful, and I like gardening, so I studied agriculture. That's where I met my wife, Liz, and uh, after graduation, we, we studied at Bible College of New Zealand before being accepted by a mission organization. But I, I just like to read you a very short paragraph. Mm. Uh, about the time that I said that prayer, I was visiting with my dad. Dad had a machinery business, mm. and um, he took me to one of his friend's places. And th- this guy was a little bit of a wheeler dealer. <laughs> He'd been out <laughs> shopping, and he bought a trailer load of library clearance sale books and he just dumped them in the middle of his shed and I liked reading so it was like a little bit like a magnet I was drawn to the pile mm. two dull green nondescript books almost leapt out at me or se- seemed to they were written by uh, an English colonial service forester mm. Richard St. Barbie Baker And I'll just read the passage that really struck me. The neglect of forestry in the past has accounted for the deserts that exist because of the fact that when the tree covering disappears from the earth, the water level sinks. When the forests go, the waters go. The fish and game go. Crops go. Herds and flocks go. Fertility departs. Then the age-old phantoms appear stealthily, one after another. Flood. Drought. Fire, famine, pestilence. And I I think this man, more than anyone else, bound those two passions of mine together. Mm. The love of trees and the, the love of people, people suffering unnecessarily. It's inseparably linked. If you're going to help people, you have to restore the degraded land that they make their living from. Mm. If you're going to have a healthy functioning environment and restore trees, you have to work with the people who who affect those trees. So they really came together in the writings of that man. Mm-hmm. So, so all of these strands coming together. You've you've studied agriculture. You've also done some some theological study at, at, at Bible College. Where did that then uh, then lead you to? Yeah. So, um, I, I, I guess again, harping back to that prayer of the little boy mm. um, and, and my mum's faith gave me that framework. There, there's more important things in life than earning money. 
that we are our brother's keeper. We've got a, a responsibility for those less fortunate than ourselves. Mm. And we've got a duty of care to be good stewards of God's creation. Yes, yes, use it, <laughs> benefit from it, but we need to look after it. So mm. what, what to do? After I studied agriculture, we, we um, went to the Bible College of New Zealand for a year. And soon after, we were accepted by an organization serving in mission, or mm. SIM. And um, they had this long-standing vacancy in Niger Republic. I, I don't think I'd ever heard of this country before. Landlocked country, borderland of the Sahara Desert and so on in West Africa. And when I realized, oh, <laughs> I'd have to learn French as well, and I was so mm. eager to just get out and be doing, I, I begged them, please send us to Nigeria just across the border. <laughs> but um, they they stuck they, they stood their ground and and convinced us to go, and in hindsight it, it it couldn't have been a better place. The massive deforestation that had occurred there and the consequent desertification was making life very very difficult for the people. So we we had a placement in Niger. I was managing a, a preparatory Bible school, a reforestation project. And um, there was a third thing. It <laughs> <laughs> oh, sounds plenty uh, to keep you busy, though. <laughs> oh, oh, and it was crazy because you had to learn the language, get little understanding of the culture, and then you're dealing with staff mm. and all these daily problems when you're just you're still wet behind the ears. It's just it, it was overwhelming. Well, just paint a little bit more of that picture for us because many of those listening may be have never set foot in Africa before. So. Um, you went with your wife, Liz. Did you have any, any children at that stage? Yes, our, our first child, Ben, was six months old at the time. And so what was the, what was the community like that you, that you landed in there? Give us a, paint the picture for us of, of, of what it was like turning up there in Africa, wife and a young child. Yeah, so I, I guess our, our living situation was a little bit artificial. It was a, a mission compound on this farm school where we, we worked. And, and so we, we did actually have electricity at least four hours a day. We had our own generator. As long as the generator was working, we had electricity. Hmm. That was linked to the pump. So the water came from a well. And, and again, getting water out of the well depended on the generator working. And there, there was also a windmill. So it, that was your backup. If mm. both of those went, you were in deep trouble. You had to get them fixed or else you'd be drawing water by hand. Mm. Um, Niger's very dusty country, particularly in the dry season. Uh, it goes eight months with very high temperatures and strong winds. And mm. so for some reason, they built this mission house with louver windows and um, uh, Liz and the house help would, would clean the house and the wind would whip up. Yeah. Um, and you'd have this fine layer of dust on everything. Yeah. Um, it was so hot at night and we had foam rubber mattresses. So it, I was going to ask, be... what's, what's the heat like there? Very warm. Oh, oh yes. In, in parts of the year, it can be 40 degrees Celsius or more. Mm. And then in the lead up to the range, you add to that high temperature, you had, add humidity and it was very, mm. very uncomfortable. Mm. Um, so yeah, quite, quite difficult. And that, that mattress though, it used to heat up mm. and you couldn't get to sleep on it. And somebody gave us a good trick. You, you wet the sheets about half an hour before you go to bed. Hmm. Then you wet them again because they would have dried off completely. And, and then, then a third time, just as you're getting into bed, you, you wet them. So you're, you're under wet sheets. But if you could get to sleep before they dried, you'd stay, stay asleep for a number of hours after that. <laughs> wow. Wow. So quite, quite a, a culture shock, I imagine, um, turning up in, in a place like this. You mentioned before, before the, the desire to, to, to love people and care for people. And, and you write in your book, the ability to make friends, build trust, empathize, ask questions, listen and understand others' needs and what drives their decision making are worth more than all the world's development theories combined. Can you unpack that for us just a little bit? How, how did listening, empathizing, seeking to understand the people that you were living amongst help you in your work, um, and and particularly as you went on to do that work of seeking to um, reforest the the environment. 
Oh, oh certainly. So it's actually listening, empathizing, understanding are key elements in friendship, I think. Mm. And they're, they're essential for building relationships and trust. Remembering you're a foreigner. You don't speak their language very well. You don't understand their culture. And people naturally hold you at a bit of a distance. So they, they need to be able to trust you before they'll even try any of your big ideas. Mm, and mm. especially if you, if you picture what it must be like to be poor, you're taking a big risk if you try something new. If you get it wrong, it could mean hunger or, or even greater poverty. So they've got to be able to trust you to even try mm. what, what you're saying. My best project work, always always was in the villages where i spent the most time and i had mm. the best friends mm. and um i i think I, I learned a lot from my dad as a boy i used to travel to the farms when dad was fixing machinery and i i just watch and observe how he related to the farmers he'd nearly always stop for a cup of coffee as an italian community so espresso mm. coffee after the job was done and he would listen and ask questions and I must have been absorbing that subconsciously yeah. because you, you don't you don't train to do something like that. But I, I really admired my dad, and people loved him. Mm, mm. And and an important thing, regardless of of where it is you're working and and who you're working with, the need to to listen and and empathise. And as you say, that some of the richest work was able to be done in those places where you did take that time to. To listen to people, so let's come to some of that work, that work of, um, of of renewal and regeneration that you were looking to do there. First of all, just just give us a picture, and you've already started to do this of of the impact of deforestation in in Africa. Um, how did large parts of Africa end up like this, and, and and what sort of impact was it having upon the communities? It was absolutely devastating, Andrew. Hmm. So with the loss of trees. We could have wind speeds at planting time of up to 70 kilometres per hour, sandblasting the emerging crop as it came through. And as those grains of sand uh, cut across the leaf, of course, it would bleed and desiccate. Mm. Uh, often they would pure, simply um, out outright bury the crop. And people would have to plant and replant in the very worst years up to eight times. Mm. Now, th this is their food. It's not a magic seed uh, pot that they've got this is their food so you can imagine the mental torture of a parent knowing full well every time they replant um, that's that much less food for their children mm. soil surface temperatures of 60 degrees celsius so again it's baking wow. and a, a, a weakened plant is a more vulnerable plant to disease and insect attack um, mm. because the trees, the habitat of natural predators had been removed, no or very few insect-eating birds, lizards, spiders, in, in those years when it rained and you would expect a good crop, mm. there was no guarantee because there would be an explosion of locusts and caterpillars and sap-sucking insects. Mm. It had a big impact on the women and children. So all cooking is done with firewood, if they have it. And so they would have to walk, in some cases, four hours every second day just to collect the fuel wood. Mm. And mm. It's, it's tiring, it's hot, it's bad for their health, sometimes it's dangerous. The children are kept out of school because their labour is needed. And, and it prevents women from playing a bigger role, firstly in the family, but uh, in economic activities as well. Mm, the water mm. tables dropped. Some of the wells in the villages that we worked in might have been 60 to 100 metres deep. There are no pumps. <laughs> that mm. water has to be drawn by hand. And so picture it. Some of these wells were, were pretty much depleted. The women would sleep on the ground next mm. to the well, waiting for their bucket, the water to trickle in and fill their bucket. Wow. It, it wow. was devastating. And in the time that we were there, what we witnessed was the severity and the frequency of drought was increasing mm. and the soil fertility was decreasing. Yes, yes. You, you asked, well, how, how did that come about? Yes, so, you mentioned there the removal of trees. So Africa wasn't always like this, is that right? 
That's that's correct. So so partly it it was actually a traditional practice, and okay. you could get away with this when the population was low. You'd clear a patch of forest, farm it till the soil was tired, and then move on. And you might have a rotation and not come back to that same plot for fifteen years, by mm. which time the forest had regenerated. The, the population had grown significantly and there was no rotation. But the other culprit was colonialism and mm. this Western mindset saying we need to increase production. Modern agriculture is the solution. You, you backward people, you need to clear those remaining trees and even pull out the tree stumps mm. and use uh, oxen drawn steel plows, fertilizer and so on. Removing those trees opened up the country to those very strong winds and mm. and the the effect was terrible displacement yeah. hunger poverty and sometimes conflict over scarce resources mm, mm. and very clearly you've illustrated as well there's something you said earlier that that if you want to love people you need to care for the environment in which the context in which they are living and working and uh, as as you've as you've uh, illustrated there the, the enormous impact that it would have on people's daily life because of uh, because of this deforestation. So 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 tell me, it's into this context, very challenging context, <laughs> that you come to to work and seek to um, uh, regenerate and renew renew the land. And you've been at it for two years, and you've encountered a number of obstacles to this this reforestation work you're seeking to do. There's been local laws, uh, some of the local customs that you've just described there, uh, a high fa- failure rate of the the replanting programs that have been running to date. But then in May 1983, there's this remarkable breakthrough that occurs for you. Tell us what happened by the side of the road that day. I'd read all the texts on reforestation I could find, consulted the experts, experimented, different species of tree from around the world, different timing, different methods. Nothing worked in a sustainable or economically viable way. And and so I was getting pretty low. And I, I remember one particular day, uh, and I was actually delivering, uh, uh, I had a ute and trailer load of trees, delivering that to the villagers, knowing mm. full well most of them would die. Maybe 80, 90% of those trees would die. And the very people whom I'd come to help, what they thought of it was, Tony's the crazy white farmer. Hmm. <laughs> Who in their right mind would plant trees on their valuable cropland when they're already hungry? So that that was the mentality. And, and so I was quite frustrated, but it would have been very easy to give up and go home. Yeah. And at a certain point on this track, very sandy soil, I had to stop and reduce the air pressure so that I wouldn't get bogged. And and looking up after I stood up, I looked around north, south, east, west, every direction, barely a tree. Hmm. And the, the cogs are starting to turn over in my mind. How many million dollars would I need? How many decades, how many hundred staff to have even a small impact on this landscape? And I knew using these conventional tree planting methods, it it was a waste of time. Hmm. But I felt God doesn't make mistakes. I, I certainly felt called to be there. And I remembered that child's prayer, please use me somehow somewhere to make a difference and, and so it was another time in my life when i i shut up a prayer perhaps of desperation but i, mm. I really i tried everything else and I, I just asked god please show us what to do open our eyes help us the amazing thing to me to this day is how i could have been on that track for two and a half years nearly every week eyes open but mm. totally blind to the solution that was literally at our feet and on this particular day, before I got back into the ute, what appeared as a bush, a useless-looking desert bush, caught my attention. And I took the trouble to walk over and take a closer look. And uh, immediately, when you see the shape of the leaf of any plant, or most plants, it's like a signature telling you what the species is. Immediately, when I saw the leaf, I realized that's not a bush, it's not an agricultural weed, that's a tree. Mm-hmm. And I, I bent over, brushed away some of the accumulated sand, and sure enough, it, those shoots were pushing up from a tree stump. It, it had been a full-size tree, was cut down, and it was re-sprouting. And for me, in that instant, everything changed. 
Mm. I'm not fighting the Sahara Desert. I don't actually need multiple millions of dollars to do this thing. Everything that I need is literally at my feet. And from my crisscrossing of the countryside, I knew there were millions of these tree stumps strewn across that landscape. So that that was the turning point. Hmm. Hmm. Hence uh, the title of your book, The Forest Underground. Uh, it was uh, it was literally there. It wasn't the replanting that was needing to be done, but renewing, if you like, uh, what was already there, or bringing what was under the surface above the surface. And and so this process. Um, became known as what farmer managed natural regeneration or fmnr so just just unpack uh, fmnr a little bit more for us now and and give us a sense of the impact that it's had since that day in 1983 sure so it, it's uh in in one sense embarrassingly simple <laughs> but <laughs> often I, the greatest ashamed. ideas are aren't they Yes, yeah. So, uh, but I'm not ashamed because it actually works. It was Mm. revolutionary, in fact. So, what what it consists of is you you have these tree stumps sprouting all over the landscape, and sometimes Mm. uh, dormant seeds. When the conditions are right, seeds that were dropped by remnant trees will germinate. Normally, in preparation for sowing the crop, farmers would slash all of this regrowth and, in fact, burn it. And and so you're back to zero again. So the the process of FMNR, farmer managed natural regeneration, is to select those shoots and and stumps that you want to regrow into trees. Obviously, if you're a farmer, you can't let every single one of them grow. There won't be any space for your food crop, Mm. which is the most important thing to the farmer. So select the ones that you want. And then what happens when you cut a tree? There'll be a profusion of stems, even up to 50 stems from one stump. It's very, very important to reduce that competition. And so Mm. we, we cut the smaller, the broken, the crooked ones. And, and reduce it down to about five stems. Prune some of the lower side branches and we, we change our behavior. We, we prevent certain things from damaging that tree. So mm. we, we won't plow over the top of it. Uh, we, we won't cut those five remaining stems when we're looking for firewood. In the dry season, we'll try and keep the bigger livestock away from those smaller trees while they're still growing. Mm. And in many cases during the dry season, people are burning extensively, burn the crop stubble, burn the dry grass. We try to change that behavior to give the small trees a chance to get up. It's really about mindset change. Yes, And if I can convince parents and farmers, communities, that it's in their best interest to work with nature and allow some of these trees to come back, then the rest is relatively easy because everything you need is actually in the landscape. Yeah, yeah. And look, this process, um, I believe, is what led to currently, what, 6 million hectares of rehabilitated land in Nigeria alone. Is that right? And then further afield than that. That, That's correct. And and you also asked me about impact. So you have that 6 million hectares of farmland. Now, with a much greater level of um, protection from the strong Mm. winds, the high temperatures, and many of these trees are putting nitrogen back into the soil, organic matter, so they're enriching the soil. And it's estimated, well, across the 6 million hectares, there's about 240 million trees Mm. without planting a single one. Wow. And what's the impact? Why are farmers doing that? Almost a billion dollars increase in gross income. So the value of the extra produce that people consume, plus the value of the surplus that they sell, nearly Mm. a billion dollars worth, helping more than 4.5 million people. Because of the improved soil conditions and microclimate, farmers in Niger are growing an additional 500,000 tonnes of grain every year. And they're doing this without fertiliser, irrigation or better seed. If you have access to those things, good and well, most of these people don't. So it's it's effectively doubled their food supply Mm. just by virtue of now working with nature. Wow. So so it's had a very, very big impact. And if you look at the context, wh- where did it happen? It happened in one of the poorest countries of the world hmm. um, with, with very little external assistance. This, this was a farmer's movement. 
Mm. It's a phenomenal impact for the for the good of the people there, and and the impact has spread beyond Nigeria, hasn't it? You have had opportunities to uh, see this work spread. Uh, in other parts of the globe, through your work now these days with World Vision, you've had, uh, I believe, opportunities to advocate um, for many nations and the poor in those nations to world leaders. And uh, and tell me about this special award that you received in, in 2018, recognising your work and, and this wider impact. Thank you. So I, I joined World Vision in um, 1999. We'd spent 17 years in... Um, Niger, mm. and I, I really thought World Vision is an international organization, works in a hundred countries. Yes, it's a child-focused organization, but if you really want to help children, you have to you have to restore the environments that they live in. And so I thought, wonderful, let me add it. And pretty much the whole time that I've been with World Vision since '99, I've been this ambassador, uh, speaking, promoting, advocating for for governments, for other non-government organisations, and for World Vision itself to to implement this work at scale. So far, we've introduced it into about um, 29 countries. Hmm. And many other organizations, donors, governments have embraced this and they're, they're replicating the work as well. So it's, it's, it's spreading globally. Hmm. Um, the award in 2018, uh, it's called the Right Livelihoods Award, sometimes known as the Alternative Nobel Prize. <laughs> so I, I'm very, very thankful for that, um, recognition, not, not because I need more praise or anything like that, hmm. but, hmm. It's created an awareness that simply wasn't there pre-2018, um, mm. and it's opened doors. I've gotten to speak to the, the halls of the, the European Union, um, parliaments in Europe, in the US. I've met with um, US congressmen and so on. It, mm. It's opened the doors to speak and promote this work. Mm. Mm. It's it's just extraordinary. And... Uh, in many ways, all coming from uh, that boy growing up in regional Victoria, and that and that simple prayer, which which you now each one of us can pray, no matter how old or young we are, you know, God use me somewhere somehow. Uh, it's it's wonderful, Tony. Look, this this story and the impact that it's had has obviously been profound. And so, in a in a moment, I'd like to explore a little bit more of the impact of your Christian faith upon this work, and also uh, not just how it might also be relevant to our daily work, wherever we might be, but also how uh, we might care for the environment uh, in our context in Australia and uh, recognise the impact that that can have on some of the world's poorest nations. And when we return, we'll consider some of those questions. You've heard of IQ and EQ, but what about your EVQ? Grow in your evangelism quotient, or EVQ, so you know what to say and when to say it when you're sharing your faith. It's like IQ, but for your evangelism. Wherever you are in your evangelism journey, join one of our tailor-made programs with your own personal mentor. Find out more today at evq.org. Well, welcome back. My guest today is forest maker Tony Ronaldo. Now, Tony, before we move on, uh, these days uh, you're back living in Melbourne, <laughs> very different in lots of ways to life in Niger. If there was un- one aspect of life in Africa that you could replicate here, what, what would it be? Sure. So I, I, I don't want to romanticise poverty. Life was definitely hard for people, mm. but they had so much to teach us and, and they're so generous. They'd share their food, even though it, it might mean their own children going hungry. If you have a, a visitor, you make way for the visitor and, mm. and the visitor eats first. So they'd share their food, their living space. They'd welcome you so warmly. And I, I think we've lost that in our Western mm. country. We're very, very insular, um, self-contained and so on. In too many cases, we don't even know our own neighbours. That's a that's a good challenge, a good challenge for us to hear. Tony, I want to turn to the question now of your faith um, and that guiding both uh, the work that you did and also how you did it. You write this in your book. There are spiritual dimensions to poverty which money and technology cannot fix. 
So, given that, what motivated you to nevertheless seek to alleviate poverty and improve the natural environment? I, I guess it's uh, my, my faith that drives this, and I, mm. I go back to that child's prayer, please use me somehow, somewhere to make a difference. But in, in my life, I try to follow the example of Jesus, and Jesus himself fed the hungry. And there's so many scriptures that, that point to this, and, and, and I think of Matthew 25. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these, the least of my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So that, that rings in my ears, and I, I think as Christians we can't ignore people's need, and, mm. and it, it really does drive me. So an act of obedience, but also an uh, act of um, thankfulness. We have so much and, and it's an act of gratitude, really. The same with my motivation for restoring the environment. At the end of the day, the, the scriptures teach very clearly that the earth doesn't belong to us. We're not mm. actually free to trash it. it. It belongs to God, the one whom we call Lord. And so we're put here to be good stewards definitely use it, definitely benefit. It's it's there for us to, to flourish with, but we have a responsibility to make sure that it's still there for the next generation. Hmm. Hmm. Tony, one of the things that um, struck me in your book is the theme of prayer and uh, just how much that was shaping your work and continues to shape your work. So can you just talk to us a little bit about that? Why is prayer so important for you when it comes to your daily work? Sure. You, you alluded to my answer a little bit earlier. Mm. So I really was thrown in the deep end. Yeah. And so many times, especially when you don't have the language and you don't understand very, very different culture and way of thinking. Um, uh, I was out of my depth. I didn't know what to do very often. At times I faced opposition. Uh, from within the the community, sometimes from the church that we were working with, sometimes even in our own mission. There's always human conflicts that occur. So at at the very least, prayer could be very comforting and reassuring Mm. when you take these needs to God. But often through prayer, you would receive wisdom, insight, understanding and and sometimes solutions uh, you know whatever that problem was <laughs> you'd receive the solution through prayer hmm. um, sometimes not but you would have this peace that god was in control and even though i didn't understand all that was going on around me why god i'm trying to do this good work and things keep failing you keep breaking why even if i didn't get the answer to that I could have this peace that, no, God did call me here, Mm. and he was in control. The the other aspect is, and it's it's very, very powerful, and I think too often as Christians we forget this, that we're dealing with a God of power and action, Mm. not Mm. just a God of words and thoughts. You you know, here, everything's at your fingertips, light switch, credit card, we don't fall back on this God of power because we think we don't need him. But we saw amazing interventions in our time then. I, I think of the 1984 famine. Had no mm. money. There seemed to be no grain in, in the big trading center that we lived in. And we had no government authorization. Even if we had money and grain, we didn't have permission to do anything with it. And mm. we prayed and we prayed. And within a very short period... The money started to come in, grain mysteriously appeared in that center, mm. and we got our permission. And mm. and so I, it, it, it was much easier to be a person of prayer in that situation than mm. here, where really everything served on a plate. We're so spoiled. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It sounds like it was um, wonderfully significant for deepening your faith um, and, and confidence and trust in God being in situation like that. Tony, I want to explore a little bit with you now how you balance what I think can be a tension. Uh, So in uh, the early chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, for example, we read how God gives humanity his creation to both work it and to take care of it. Um, We've obviously been speaking quite a bit about the taking care of it, the responsibility for care. But there's also this responsibility that we have to actually work the creation, to take the raw materials of this world, to reshape, restructure them, to to help humanity flourish. So 
how do we as Christians get the balance right? What are what are some of the checks and balances that might help guide us in our work so that we're both being good stewards of the creation, we're we're caring for it, but also recognizing the need to to work it for human flourishing. Yeah, thank you. I I don't actually see a tension. Um, mm. I think what's gotten us into the situation where we're in, we have runaway climate change, loss of forests at a global scale, biodiversity loss, land degradation. We, we've forgotten that dual responsibility that God's given us, and we've focused mm. on the production exploitation side at the total disregard for that command to be good stewards of creation and, and in my mind it's, it's not an either or in, in agriculture at least it's possible to have diverse beautiful and highly productive land when we restore the environment and case in point what happened in Niger where through now working with nature crop mm. yields doubled farmers growing more and different types of crops and livestock and nature is flourishing in in mm. that particular context, it's not obviously a national park, a biodiverse, dense forest, but it's a highly productive biodiverse farm uh, parkland. There are contexts where we we do restore biodiverse forests, and people mm. still benefit from that. There's less flooding on their agricultural land. They can keep honeybees. They can harvest, uh, sustainably harvest grasses, even fuel wood, without destroying that forest. And mm. so I, I think when, when the crunch comes, if exploitation threatens to send species into extinction, to destroy unique landscapes, think of um, Lake Pedder in Tasmania, mm. or permanently pollute streams and groundwater to to me in those instances we need to say no let's develop a different technology to to get from the earth what we need but without destroying it mm. and i think historically it's been this refusal to look for alternatives and blindly charge on as if the environment doesn't matter mm. Even mm. even setting biblical responsibility aside, it's come back to bite us now. Look at the runaway temperatures and, and forest fires in Europe and Northern Hemisphere, severe flooding and fires in our own country in recent years. It's coming back to bite us. Mm. Mm. Tony, as you were speaking there, and just um, as I was reading your book as well too, I was struck by the way that you um, you described the connection with the land that many people in Africa had um, or have that that we just don't have in a in a built up urban context like the the major cities of Australia. There's a real disconnectedness from the land that many of us um, experience. And, and it got me thinking, I wonder if we had a deeper connection to the land, whether that, um, as you say, it's not a tension, but these things working together in harmony, this working and taking care of the land. If we had a deeper connection with the land, uh, those those things might work themselves out uh, a little bit more, less intention. Tell me, what do you think about that? And, and, and how would we go about about cultivating such a, a connection with the land if we're, we're living in a built-up urban uh, major city. Mm -hmm. I agree with you fully, Andrew, mm. that um, if we were connected and if we loved the land, we, we would be much more reluctant to destroy it. Mm. Uh, for starters, well, I'll, I'll say four things. Um, home mm. design, urban design, farm design, and then children. So home design... These days, if you look at modern houses, it's it's 100% for indoor living hmm. and has a digital focus. All the entertainment's on the screen. In many cases, there's no backyard. Often, if there is a backyard, it's either concrete or artificial turf. I mean, hmm. you know, when I was a kid out the backyard, a bit over the fence, I could collect tadpoles hmm. and... 200 metres from the front fence, we're in this wonderland playing cowboys and Indians in our, in our bushland. How many children don't have that experience anymore? So mm. a home design needs a, a major revamp, I think. Bring back nature back into the suburbs, back into our homes, bigger backyards and, and, and so on. 
urban design, can we at least respect the, the streamlines, have a little bit of a buffer for, for nature on either side of streams mm. and more open spaces, um, more screening of buildings and so on with greenery. And then farm design. Recently, I flew to to Perth, and it, it'd be the same if I went north, actually. Hour after hour over cropland with barely a tree in sight. Hmm. And the same principles that applied in Niger apply here, except we're, we're much, much slower to, to learn the lesson. Our farming would be cheaper and more effective if we had some measure of protection by, by trees. But in, in our forefathers' wisdom, they removed much of that. And to our detriment, we have major salting, we have erosion, we have higher temperatures and wind speeds. And, and you have to compensate with that with more inputs mm. so farm design could be radically changed but I, I would say let's start with children children are so open to learning about the environment and in our work in world vision in developing countries often in the schools we create environment clubs we incorporate aspects in of environmental management and stewardship in the various lessons geography history whatever wherever you can slip it in we get it in there mm. Mm. These children become passionate campaigners. If they see someone wrongly cutting down a tree in their community, <laughs> they'll confront them and they'll mm. teach their parents how to manage both the land for production and the environment. Mm. Mm. That's very helpful. Home design, urban design, farm design and... Um teaching the next generation and uh, I think many of those listening will have work that intersects with all of those different areas so great opportunities for us to to be mindful of this and you're right Tony I've got three school-aged kids and uh, and they regularly pull me up on environmental <laughs> things that uh, I've just got into the habit of doing but they uh, they they stop me so it's a uh, it's it's wonderful to see that next generation being so mindful of these things G Tony, give them a high five from me <laughs> <laughs> i will do i will do <laughs> tony you were a missionary technically um which people often associate with you know going overseas to tell people about jesus obviously that wasn't your your primary focus of the work nevertheless tell me how did you find your your daily work and the the obvious concern that you have for the vulnerable in those communities actually created avenues for you to nevertheless speak um about Jesus and, and, and any advice that you might give all of us who are listening and sharing Jesus in our various different work contexts? Certainly. So I, I, I never told people what to do or what to believe. Mm. I, I think God's bigger than that and people of all cultures are intelligent enough to draw their own conclusions. I, I, I modelled my life on Jesus and, and mm. I'd often ask myself, what would Jesus do in this situation, whether it's hunger or some conflict or whatever, what would Jesus do? What would he say? How would he respond? And and so we had these opportunities. We fed the hungry. We provided water in villages that were thirsty, sometimes shelter to the poor. We visited and helped the sick. And, and people would come to me and say, Tony, why are you doing this? Hmm. Some people in our own culture care less about us than, than you do, and you could have a much more comfortable life if you stayed home in Australia. So they themselves would open the door to to me responding and, and giving an explanation for, for my motivation. Hmm. At the same time, we did work um, closely with the church and and linked linked our work with the church when it was appropriate. We never forced religion, never proselytized um, inappropriately. Mm. We, we worked in a very natural way. Um, mm. And I, I say, what advice would I give? Many people will never read the Bible. Mm. And there, there are 66 books in the Bible. The only Bible they will ever see is you and me. We, we're actually the 67th book, mm. unwritten book of the Bible. And, and so what, what does the Lord require of you? Just quoting Micah chapter 6, verse 9. Mm. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And I think people come to you and they will say, why are you different? Why are you helping me? Why do you care? And, and you'll have an answer to give them. Mm -hmm. 
Mm, it's a great encouragement. Tony, one final question. When I spoke with um, various people in the lead-up to doing this interview with you, uh, several of them kept using the same word to describe you, which was humble. Now, I, I, know, I know that uh, your humility means you'd, you'd hate to talk about this aspect of yourself. So let's just talk in, in general terms for this final question. But how have you seen humility in daily work being something that God often uses to accomplish great good through us. I, I think that at, at the end of the day, no matter what culture, we're, we're all human beings. We all mm. crave for respect, for recognition, even, even for love. And I, I think God uses humility to open doors of friendship and, and collaboration. You, can you think of a, an arrogant person in that situation, somebody wants acceptance, recognition, an arrogant person comes in telling people what to do or what to believe. Mm. And, and I think it quickly closes the door to relationships and it, it's trampling that natural desire that we all have to be known, to be loved, to be recognized. It's very interesting. We were talking about children a minute ago. One of the biggest openings to acceptance um, that that we had was our own children. And mm-hmm. when you think of it, why why would that be? Children are not threatening. They're mm-hmm. very very trusting. Usually, their their first reaction in a situation is to smile, <laughs> very disarming, and they ask lots of questions. And and so this natural humility of a child opens hearts. And I'm not saying that I was childlike, but I, I, if, if you can put yourself in that position where you, you're not the big know-all, you're asking mm-hmm. questions and giving them that deference, that respect, that they, they must know something, they've survived in this harsh climate, let me ask them what they think, mm-hmm. then you, you win a lot of friends, a lot of respect that way. Mm-hmm. Look, Tony, it's been an absolute privilege to to talk with you. Uh, your story is just uh, just extraordinary, and yet there are profound implications for all of us, uh, in no matter what our daily work is, and uh, and equally profound implications for us also in terms of our concern and care for the environment because of the impact that that will have on the on the world's poor. And um, mentioned your book, but uh, we'll put links to your book, The Forest Underground, in the show notes. Commend it to to everyone to. Read. It was a wonderful, incredible story of how God has been at work in your life and continues to be at work through your daily labor. So, Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, look, in our next episode, we're looking at women, work and calling. I speak with American author, podcaster and academic Joanna Meyer about her passion to equip and encourage women everywhere to step into your place in God's world, as she puts it. That's the subtitle of her brand new book about women and work. But until then, I'm Andrew Laird and you've been listening to the Life at Work podcast. Enjoyed this podcast? Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing and leaving a rating so others can find us too. Join us next time on the Life at Work podcast with Andrew Laird.